0: Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit. Preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3. is a very powerful passage. Uh, One I think that most believers uh, have some type of familiarity to if they've been faithful in their Bible reading or if they've been faithful under the sound preaching of the Word of God. Uh, But the commandment given here in verse number 1, if you be risen with Christ... That's indicative of a believer. In fact, you might think of Romans chapter 6 and verse one. he says, "What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we live any longer? Uh, we've been dead to sin. How shall we live any longer in the affairs of that life? In verse number two and three, as he continues, he talks about uh, being buried in the likeness of Christ and raised in newness of life. And you consider that, not that baptism washes away your sins. Uh, if you went into the baptismal pool, an unbeliever, you'll come out a wet unbeliever. Rather, baptism is the showing forth, the communication of a heart that has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And it testifies of this marvelous work through the picture and the time of the obedience of uh, uh, biblical baptism. Uh, This risen with Christ has with it the picture uh, that you as a believer uh, have received the Lord Jesus Christ and have a distinction within you to walk according to the Spirit of God that we spent some time talking about in Galatians chapter 5 and for that matter Ephesians chapter 5 a few weeks before. But then he commands them in verse number 2 to set their affections. If you write in your Bible you circle that word affections, it's the love of your life. It's the desires of your mind. It's the will of your heart. And really at the heart of the matter, uh, for a believer, our affection ought to always be embodied. In Deuteronomy, I think of the sixth chapter, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, with all of thy soul, with all of thy strength. And that should be the engagement of every believer to have a affection that is set on the person and the work of the Almighty God. And a desire to follow therein. But he continues in verse number 3 and gives us the reason why you're dead and your trespasses and sin. And note this phrase because this is the theoretical. This is that which should be in the life of every believer. But this often, as we'll see tonight, becomes the source of the matter why it is not the case with every believer. And that is that your life is hid with Christ. It's a powerful expression given in the last part of verse number 4. He, or rather in the first part of verse number 4, he talks about when Christ kind of all set here, who is our life? That's a reason, a way in which one believer could know that their affections are set on things above, when Christ is the all in their life. Not a means to an end. Uh, years and years ago, uh, we were working a little house church for a little bit. We had started a work and. And uh, lost the renting place that we were meeting at. Had moved it temporarily into a home. And this, this lady visited. Um, I think somebody had probably invited her. She heard the gospel. And I uh, wasn't a pastor at all. as a little boy. But I, I remember distinctly realizing that this is probably the first time this lady's really ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she's overwhelmed with it. I mean, it was visible and real to her life. And that day, she accepted the Lord Jesus as her Savior. as a marvelous, marvelous opportunity to witness that. And so afterwards, she's visiting around with folks, and I heard her make this comment. She said, now God isn't my lucky charm anymore. I, I thought about that, and immediately I thought she was talking about a cereal. I said, what, what does she mean by that? And so I had to get informed, but really, she had such a conversion in her life. Beforehand, her relationship with God had been, God, bail me out of this problem. God, help me overcome this. Lord, help me to do this. And then, aside from all of those seemingly idolatrous expressions that was within her heart, at this moment now, she knew something of the Lord Jesus. She had a relationship with a God in heaven that heretofore she had not had. That's what she meant by, he was no longer my lucky charm, but rather he is my Savior. Uh, it's really the indication that is given here. When Christ, who is our life, our life being hid with Christ in God, and then there's a commandment to mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. You see here a list of things, but if I can get you to focus really on verse number one again, and with these things in mind, he said, If, if you be risen with Christ, and pause for a moment. Mortify, therefore, your members. You see, sometimes we have the idea that all we have to do is be saved and God will take care of the rest. And we fail to realize that in part, our walk with God requires us to have due diligence on every aspect of our life. You know, every year, about once a year, you'll hear doctors talk about that you need to have a physical checkup. Once a year or so, you could go and just make sure that everything's working like it ought to work, you know. Make sure there are no surprises. Some of you have reached the age where you already have set those appointments out, and you don't need to get checked for this or checked for that, as it were. Why? Well, the idea is to get an opportunity to find a, a cancer or a tumor or something like that long in advance before it has gone to the point where it would be a very undesirable event in your life and be a tremendous trauma to you. And so the idea of getting these annual uh, physicals has the idea of hindering of illness, physical illnesses in life. You could speak to a financial advisor and they would tell you that once a year you should use the opportunity to really have a financial audit of yourself. Look how you've spent your money. Uh, You know, some of uh, the banks today offer uh, these little things that at the end of the year, they kind of give you a a circle graph, and then that will tell you how you spent your money. And you can look and say, well, I didn't realize I spent that much of this on that or so-and-so. And And that financial audit you're giving yourself, you could take that opportunity and look and say, man, am I committing enough to my retirement? Because one day, if God tarries is coming, I'm going to be old. And we take once a year to look at some of these serious matters, I would submit to you that when we speak of the spiritual side, we often neglect to have any audit of our walk with God. We fall into the assumption that because we are a believer, it will all end well. And therefore, because we're a believer and we're just as sure of Jesus Christ, and just because we're a believer and we will spend an eternity with Him, that somehow because the end will be okay, all is well meaning it matters not what I'm engaged in in life. And this flies in direct contradiction to the command given here in verse number five, mortify your, uh, therefore your members which are upon the earth. You see, the believer that fails to take a regular audit of his spiritual state, of his walk with God, not his relationship I'm speaking of, I'm talking about his fellowship, His closeness to God, the presence of sin in his life, the thought life that may be rambling to and fro instead of being steadfastly fixed on the pure Word of God. A failure to truly audit that by the Spirit of God in your life will ultimately bring about spiritual decline within your life that will result to great destruction. That's really the theme of the message this evening. The Highway to Spiritual Decline. And yet it really shouldn't surprise us at all because the Scripture is full of individuals that had spiritual decline in their life. Let me me just take you. These are not either in 2 Peter nor in there in Genesis directly. But let's just take, you're here in Colossians. Turn over to James. Let's work backwards a little bit, just for a moment. We'll get to 2 Peter directly, but look over in James. So just because my salvation is eternally secured... That doesn't necessarily mean that my spiritual well being is sound. If that were the case, to be risen with Christ, there would be no need to mortify, therefore, my members. Notice, if you will, you're in the book of James, Hebrews, James. Notice chapter 5. we move in chapter 5. Look at the last two verses. Here's one of these illustrations of one that spiritually declined. Brethren, James speaking to beloved, he said, If any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and hide shall hide a multitude of sins. This idea of error, it's the idea of fraud. It's the idea of straying straying from the way that you should go. He's not talking about error and losing his salvation. He's talking about a child of God that strayed from the way. They went into a place of spiritual decline. And this individual is the erring brother. The converting is not to win him to Christ, but rather to get him to return to the God of his salvation. And James is admonishing them. Now you see a believer and they're straying. They're on the highway to spiritual decline. Do your utmost in your prayer for him and your intercessory work that his heart might be turned to the God of his salvation. For in doing so, you'll save a soul from death. Why? Well, friend, you and I stray far enough down the path in complete opposition to the word of God. You've set God's face against you. And he's warning them, the erring brother. You're in James. Look over, look over if you will. I want to jump ahead here just for a moment, but look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Just flip through a couple here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 you have another brother. Here James's brother goes unmentioned. It's somewhat theoretical. He's not saying that brother, he's saying if there is a brother. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 you have something more specific. A name is not given, but a circumstance is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 he says it's reported commonly that there is fornication among you. Such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed might be taken away from you. Drop down to verse number 11. But now have I written unto you not to keep company if any man called a brother, a fornicator or covetous or idolater or raider or drunk, or extortioner, with such a one no not to eat. Now, time will not allow us to dig into all of this, but the point being, in the Corinthian church, you have not just an erring brother, you have a brother that's in great sin. He's living a life in grand contradiction to the express commands of God, and this fact, he has set the hand of God against him. Now, he wasn't always that way. There's a time in his life where there was fruit that was abounding. There's a time in his life where he's walking Was a time of his life that he's saved, but his actions now align him closer by the judging of his actions, to one that is an unbeliever rather than one that is a believer. What do you have? Well, in this particular case, you have an individual that's in spiritual decline and far down the path as well. Look in Timothy for a moment. In fact, turn to first, Timothy. The next couple we'll just be in Timothy. First second, Timothy, just for a moment. What I'm trying to show you is that Scripture is full of individuals, believers, that manage to place themselves in spiritual decline. Friend, if there can be so many examples, then you and I should not sit and think that we're the exemption to the example. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you will. This is an interesting one here. no, 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is an interesting one here. In this particular passage, Paul's speaking about the care of widows. And I want to point out just a few things here beginning in um, verse number 10. He talks about her, this widow, being reported for good works. Now, what are those good works? Well, he's going to enumerate some of them. She's brought up children, the nurture and admonition of Christ, the idea she's lodged strangers, she's given to hospitality in one sense, she's in service. Uh, see, the care of this widow was directly focused at the ministry that she had had in the assembly. These are things she's known for. She had been a servant and that she had washed the saints' feet. She has relieved the afflicted. She's diligently followed every good work. Verse 11, he says, But the younger widows refused, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, what happened there? What's that mean? They were discontented. They were displeased with the lot that they had in Christ. And when that happens, they will marry. He uses strong languages in the next one. You almost think the idea that they had lost their salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He says, having damnation because they've cast off their faith. The idea here, verse number 12, isn't the fact that they have somehow lost their salvation. But because they are discontented in the place of their life, they now are behaving themselves as an unbeliever. They've allowed angry and vitriol and all manner of evil work to come about. They have busied themselves in the affairs of other individuals and behaved as one that is allied with the evil one himself. And for context, you could look at verse 13. "Having been wanting against Christ, they've learned to be idle. Why? Well, children out of the house. there's no home responsibility. And because of the state of their life, they're no longer in the place to lodge strangers. They're no longer in the place where they need to wash the saints' feet. They're no longer in the place that they can relieve the afflicted. They're idle. They're wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, notice this next phrase. Who's my lady from Little House on the Prairie again? Rachel Lynn, is that that who it is? Is Rachel Lynn verse right here? Is that who it is? Did I get the name right? That is a little house on the prairie there, but we don't need to talk about that. Anyway, listen, listen here. He goes, Not idle only, but what are they? Tattlers. What's the next word? Spreading facts here. <laughs> Speaking things which they ought not. Skip down to verse 14. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house. Notice this phrase, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Notice verse 15. For some are already turned aside after, you know what he's saying? You had these faithful women. He identifies what these faithful women did. Wash the saints' feet, relieve affliction. the whole list there in verse number 10. But now they're widows. They're in a different place in life and rather taking a spiritual audit of themselves, they have gathered to themselves a pathway and began on the road to decline. That's what he's saying in verse 15. They've already turned aside to Satan. Now he's not talking about their loss of salvation. He's talking about their failure to mortify the deeds of the flesh had opened up for them the opportunity to decline spiritually so that their behavior in life was not akin to that that a saint of God ought to have. This host of women, Timothy's the pastor at uh, various places, among them Corinth. Timothy, this is is why it's so important to handle these things this way. Why? Because these dear ladies, having a massive realignment of life priorities, now can be on the highway to spiritual decline. Look over in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And again, they're not by themselves. What I'm attempting to show you is that there are many examples of individuals who God used, who labored, ministered, and had a great testimony for God and came a point in their life, their failure to take spiritual audit of themselves, that they got on the wrong path of life because they erred from the truths of the Word of God and spiritually they're in decline. There's a number of them given in 2 Timothy. We could look in chapter 1 and verse 15, Phygelus and Hermogenes, and probably one of the most familiar in all the New Testament is found in chapter 4 and verse 8. Or rather, chapter 4 and verse 10. For Demas have forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas is really a very case of an individual in the New Testament that ministered, had an effectual ministry, had a consistent ministry, but then had a ministry in his life where he rather chose the affairs and loves of this world, if you will. He followed the lust of his heart. It's not to consider in verse number 10 that he just jumped off into some abysmal, immoral sin. But the fact is, because he was in spiritual decline long before verse 10 occurred, he's just wandered out of the path of the godly. He's left the place he ought to be. This was not something that happened to him in one night. This did not just occur suddenly. It may have been revealed suddenly to the hearts of other people. But long before that, Demas, through a series of events, had gotten his eyes far away from the Savior who was his life and rather gained a heart that was in love with the things of this world. Long before he left, Demas was on the path to spiritual decline. There are a number of other passages we could look at. We could consider the life of King Saul. There's a man that God used mightily. There's a man that, in some sense, united the nation of Israel. They had never been united quite like he did. And God equipped him in a unique way and he labored. And it was a time in his life that God wrought great victory through King Saul. In so much that all the little boys in the Jewish community would look at King Saul and they admired him. I mean, the first time you find Saul in the scripture, he's chasing daddy's mule through town and was not successful at that. And later, a few chapters later, when you find King Saul, he's victorious. You talk about God wrought a great victory in the life of King Saul. That's what you find. But then when you look at the end of King Saul, he is diametrically in a different place than where he began. But it didn't happen overnight. There was a series of events that you find him destroyed and the enemy's field and anyone and everyone close to him got tainted with his defeat as well. I think of another one. We don't often think of it spiritual decline, but it was. Old Samson the judge. Boy, a little kid didn't take me long to love Samson. But the more I studied Samson, the more I fell out of love with the idea of Samson. Who cares if you're victorious on your death day? That seems to me to be the very sheer definition of anticlimactic. That he killed more in his death. He was more obedient to God, more pursuant of the things of God in the last hours of his life than he was the entire years upon the face of the earth. Why? Because really, instead of being sold out to the things of God, instead of mortifying the deeds of the flesh, this man was in love with the things of this world and at constant turn rarely chose to make God preeminent in his life. Samson is a man that, by definition, had a tremendous amount of spiritual decline in his life. But if the New Testament example really is, the life of Demas, a great Old Testament life that could be examined by one in spiritual decline, is the life of Lot. Look, if you will, you're in Timothy. Just flip over for a moment to Second Peter. Dear, if you're Abraham, nephew. If you're Moab, granddaddy. If you're Ammon, granddaddy. Dear brother Lot. Now, notice if you will in Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, just, just a couple of verses here. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with overthrow, making them an example to those that, that after should live ungodly. Verse 7. And delivering just Lot. Vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations to reserve the unjust into the day of judgment to be punished. Notice, if you will, in verse number 7. And deliver, just a few words here. That word delivered is a very interesting word. But he says he delivered just lot. Now, we think of the word just, we can think of it in a number of definitional ways. We can think of just in a sense of isolation. For instance, exclusion. We would say that he delivered just Lot. By definition, you could look at that interpretation as saying that he only delivered Lot. But we know that's not in keeping with the Old Testament because there was more than just Lot delivered on that day. There was also his two daughters and would have been his wife, if for a moment her eyes could have been placed on the Savior that had provided a way of salvation for her. But that's a whole other matter. So it is not just Lot in the sense of an exclusionary phrase. Rather, this word just is indicative of a soteriological phrase meaning upright, meaning righteous one. If I can put it in our New Testament connotation, believing Lot, sanctified Lot, saved Lot. Lot will be in the presence of heaven, just like one day every other believer will be in the presence of God in heaven as well. He was a believing man. He believed God. But when you think of the overarching examples of his life, you'll be hard-pressed to find a man that is an example that you would want your children to follow or an example that you would like to follow in this life. There are many high water points in his life. There's many things, many, many climaxes to his life that you look at and say, boy, that's, that's a wonderful thing that occurred to him. There's some physical success that he has, particularly if we have time to look in Genesis chapter 13. He had some success. He had some adventures in life. But at the very end, really he's marked by shame and ignominy. He's a man that is more infamous than famous. Lot. Notice a few words here. This just lot, God said it delivered him. That has the idea of quick, uh, the idea of a a quick pull, uh, uh, the idea of what you might would do a a young person that, uh, and I mean a really young person that was about to be in great danger. You had a, a snatching in one sense. You delivered them. You rescued them is the idea. It's the same word that Paul used over and again about himself. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he told Timothy, he said, You know what? Persecutions and afflictions I have endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. God cared for me. He was aware for me. He made a way of escape. He provided for me. He delivered me. Not just simply in a singular sense of saving me. He preserved me. He uses this word again, referring to himself. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17, he said, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but God strengthened me. And then he goes on to talk about preaching the gospel of God. He uses this phrase at the end of verse 17, God delivered me out of the mouth of the lion. In verse 18 of the same chapter, he says, And God shall deliver me from every evil work. So Paul knew some of this about deliverance and Peter, by inspiration, uses this word that God delivered just Lot. He delivered him. He brought him out of a place of destruction. He saved him. He gave him opportunity. Notice another word, though. While he was in Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's the context of verse 6 that brings it about, he says something interesting. This just Lot had vexed, or rather I should say was vexed, in his heart and soul, this word vex, it has the idea of being oppressed. Really, you could look at it if you wanted a word picture. It's the idea of to wear with toil. You know, you ever, you ever had some clothes and you just wore them out, but they, they, they still had some good use in them, and so you made them your work clothes? Ever had that? Boy, the knees were thin bare, threadbare. And the cuffs were all chewed up. And you would say, yes, I've just, Plum wore these out. That's the idea of what happened here a Lot. He had been worn as though by great toil. And then he goes on. What, what is it that vexed him? the filthy conversation, the word filthy there, the idea of sexual lasciviousness and wantonness. It's not the fact that they were unthankful, ungrateful, the city of Sodom. It's their immorality and lifestyle. He goes on to capitalize on this with the word conversation, their behavior. Then in verse 8, he says, For that righteous man dwelling among them, it's a place he had settled down. He gotten to the place where he was comfortable in the presence of those that were godless. It goes on in verse number 8. He says, in seeing and hearing, vexed. Slightly different than the first, vex. This verse, vex, has the idea of torment. He had vexed his rightful soul. He hadn't wore his soul out. He had tormented his soul. In fact, this same word, vexed, in Revelation chapter 12, it talks about that woman in the end days who giveth forth of the child in great travail. Same idea. His soul was in constant pain and turmoil. Why? Because he was on the highway to spiritual decline. Look over in Genesis chapter number 11. There's an interesting question as you think about the life of Lot. And as one considers the path of decline that he was on, I think there's an honest question to be asked. Why did it happen to Lot? Lot and Abraham from the same family. Abraham was the uncle to Lot. In chapter number 11 of, of Genesis, you find this out. And... um, in, in, in verse number 31, he says, And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son. And Sarai, the daughter-in-law, to, uh, daughter-in-law his son, Abraham's wife, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, and they came into Haran and dwelt there. First time you mention Lot, he's identified. Abraham and Lot have the same genetic abilities. They're from the same city. Their experiences in life have been quite similar. So much for the idea that society and experiences have to make you what you are. Almost foolish things, you know, we sometimes say it jokingly. Well, you know, if we're struggling with a temper, we'll say, well, that's because I'm part Irish. You know, that's theologically not a good excuse. No more than to say that because Lot was more uh, part Chaldee that he had a trouble following God. No, we just have proclivities of the flesh. And it's whether or not we're going to mortify them or not. But Abraham and Lot, they're from the same genetic strand. They're from the same town. They have the same experiences. In fact, Abraham's migration eastward, Lot's with him. They go through some of the same dangers, toils, and snares. Yet you can't find two individuals that are more contradictive than Abraham and Lot. Consider some of these. I have about six of them here. We're told of Abraham, that Abraham walked by faith. That's never said of Lot. What we do know in chapter 13, in chapter 13 and verse 6, I believe it is, there's, uh, verse 7, there's much strife. And in verse number 10, they, Abraham tells him, he says, let's go on our separate ways. And... You pick first Lot, and the scripture tells us in verse number 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes. Abraham walked by faith. How did Lot walk? By sight. You want to know why some Christians are spiritually victorious and others are on spiritual decline? What they view things from matters a tremendous amount. Whether they walk by faith or walk by sight. Number two, I think of a second one, you find Abraham being a very generous man. In fact, I alluded just a moment ago, Abraham deferred to Lot and let Lot choose first. Now that's amazing. I saw a mother once. There was one piece of the pie left or whatever and it's two children that wanted it. And uh, the mother got out a knife and told the one, said, whoever cuts it, Choose a second. Kept everything honest. You think about this. There weren't two very green areas to graze the herd that they had. There was one. I go back to Abraham walking by faith. By trusting God, Abraham could know that Lot could make whatever choice he wanted to make, but Abraham had already made his choice of what he was going to do. Lot not only chose by sight, Lot was by nature a very greedy individual. It's going to be mine. Abraham said, you pick. It's going to be mine. I've got to take care of mine. I've got to have my way. That's Lot. Notice the third thing, rather, when you think of Abraham, you think of a man that's holy. He's the friend of God. When you think of Lot, you see in his life a man that loves the world. You think of Abraham, Hebrews tells us that he was looking for a city that hath foundations. We think of 2 Peter. Lot was a man that dwelt in a sinful city. You think of Abraham, and you think of Lot. Lot's descendants are all part of infamy. How they were conceived how they lived their life, the nations they became, and the end of those nations. One of his sons slash grandsons was Moab. and God called Moab my washpot. Whether of Abraham, by him shall all nations be blessed. You, You can't get more distinction than that. I think when you think of Lot, it's very obvious you got a man who all of his earthly possessions... In fact, in verse number 5, he talks about all the flocks and herds and tents. But the last time you find Lot, except for the passage in 2 Peter, he's living in a cave broke. His spiritual decline led to his financial ruin. At Romans chapter 4, speaking to some sense of Abraham who was justified by faith. He's called the heir of the world. Here's two grand distinctions that exist. How did that happen? Let me just touch on one or two things here. I mentioned, we read the verse actually, Hebrews chapter 11. You have the first mention of Lot. He's with Abraham and they're traveling. The second mention of Lot you get... is In chapter 12 and verse 5, and this is important because the scripture just says that he went with Lot. That Abraham took Sarah and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance, and they had gathered and the souls they got in Haran, they went forth into the land of Canaan and passed the land, and and into the land of Canaan they came. Now, I'm gonna skip down for time's sake, but I want you to note verse 8 and he removed from thence into a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on west and Hale on the east. And there he, Abraham, built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham's just arrived in Canaan. The spiritual mind of Abraham builds an altar. And Lot's present there as well. Between you get to the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13, There's a long story that occurs, and it really starts in verse number 10. There was what in the land? Famine. I'm not sure who advised Abram. I don't know where he got the idea, but he said, I think I'll go down to Egypt because the famine is so bad, verse number 10, grievous in the land, that when I go down there, that's how I'll make it. And he connived a really deceptive plot. You'll note in the text, perhaps in verse number 12, his wife, Sarah, beautiful lady, he said, tell them you're my sister. Which in context, they were close kin. He said, tell them you're my sister, so that if they decide to take you, that I'll be spared. By the way, if you read ahead to Genesis chapter 12, this didn't work out for him. And when he did it the second time in Genesis chapter 20, It doesn't work out for him either. But no doubt this story is related or it's a unique coincidence because in chapter 26, Isaac does the same thing in a place called Gerar where Abraham went the second time in Genesis chapter 20. Fudging on the truth a little bit. So here in this text, there's great plagues that come. Verse 17, the Lord played Pharaoh. Pharaoh called on Abraham, what have you done? Why saidest thou this to me? And Pharaoh, in the end of verse 20, commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away, and his wife, and all that he had. Now, something marvelous is going to happen in the next two verses. Abraham went out of Egypt. I don't know how long he was there. But I can tell you this. He goes up, he, and Sarah, and all that he had, and what? Lot. Lot was with him at Bethel. Lot left Ur of the Chaldees with him. Lot was with him at Bethel. Lot was with him when he connived a way to go to Egypt. Lot was with him in Egypt. And Lot returns in the context of Scripture all the way back to the altar that he had built. Lot's with him the entire journey. If you'll notice in verse number 2, the Scripture says, And Abraham was very rich. It's the first time you'll find that phrase about Abraham. He's never rich until he comes out of Egypt. Prior to that, he just has substance. It's great irony, isn't it? Why did he go down to Egypt? Because the substance was in jeopardy. Lot comes out and there's great wealth now that Lot has. And that precipitated the whole matter. There's a few things that Abraham brings out of Egypt. According to chapter 16 and chapter 20, he brings out a slave woman named Hagar. That's going to cost him. And that's going to cost his descendants from generations. He brings out wealth. He brings back a renewed desire to be back in the presence of God because he'll go to Bethel. And he comes back with a renewed and vigorous desire to trust God in chapter 13. The problem is, Lot doesn't bring any of that back with him. Surely brings wealth. But there's no mention of any desire to please God or any desire to worship God. And that's the beginning of Lot's descent down the highway of spiritual decline. He's deprioritized God and any service to him and any thankfulness for all that God has given and provided and cared for him. And Lot falls into the presumption that because he knows his end will be fine that it makes no matter how he lives his life Yet the end of his life is full of sorrow, regret, and ignominy. There's a man whose life is an example of what should never happen to a believer. The sad point in all of this as you think about spiritual decline. It was 100% avoidable. That we sit here in 2023. And maybe if we could reconvene in 2033, maybe there'd be some of us that even right now, unbeknownst to all of us, we're in spiritual decline. Let the passing of years, and it will reveal the matter and direction of your heart. Are you in spiritual decline? Who's first in your life? Let's stand to our feet. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania 17112 and visit our website at www.svbc p a dot o r g until next time